Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to David Stoddard, Chief Operating Officer at Barnett Waddingham, a leading independent professional services consultancy across risk, pensions, investment, and insurance, with a team of over 1,330 people across the UK. David has had an incredibly varied career, having worked with many of the big names in consulting, including Accenture, EY, and Beringa, the last of which where we first met on a project for one of David's life and pensions clients. Over the last 25 years, David has moved from consulting into industry and back again, and navigated multiple continents at the same time. It's this varied experience of successfully managing multiple career transitions that makes him a perfect guest for the show, and we go into each of these in today's episode. We cover a ton in this conversation and discuss a whole host of topics, including David's move from Accenture to Lloyds Banking Group and how he was able to successfully make the leap into industry and climb the career ladder, ultimately running their 3,000-person life and pensions operations function. Moving abroad why David and his family chose to move to Australia, and his top tips for anyone thinking of making a similar leap. And David's advice on growing a consulting practice, whether you're doing so in a big established player or a startup consulting firm. It was great to catch up with David and learn more about his story, 
both from before when we worked together at Beringa and since. I learned so much that I didn't know, and there's some great practical advice in this conversation, both professional and personal. So if you are thinking of making the jump out into industry, or maybe you're considering whether you should move from a global firm to a boutique, I know that you are really going to enjoy this interview with David. So with all of that said, all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation with David Stoddard. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Just a huge thank you for the invitation. Today, I've really actually enjoyed all your podcasts and you've had some very inspirational and very interesting guests. It's a great honor to be asked today by you. Well, thank you for making the time, David. I know in today's lockdown world, everyone's incredibly busy and it seems the days have only got busy and now you can go back to back on Zoom. So thank you for for carving out the time and, and really pleased to have a catch up. I think, you know, we obviously knew each other a little bit from time back at Baringa and really keen to dig into some of the things that I think are quite unique in your story. And I won't won't sort of steal that from you. I'll let you share. But maybe we start there, David. Why don't, just for my listeners who maybe don't know you so well, be great to tee them up with that background on yourself and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, very happy to, Nick. So I'm, I'm currently um, the Chief Operating Officer of Barnet Waddingham, which is a leading independent UK professional services consultancy at the forefront of risk, pensions, investment and insurance. But prior to Barnet Waddingham, I, I think there's kind of three parts to my career. The first part is I started in consulting, like many of your guests at Anderson Consulting that became Accenture and spent eight happy years there. I then went into the insurance industry itself and spent eight years leading very large operations for Lloyd's TSB, which became Lloyd's Banking Group, and then transitioned back to consulting for the last eight years and and had stints with two consultancies. Firstly, EY out in Sydney in Australia, where I I, I led the startup of a team focused on business transformation. And secondly, um, Beringa Partners back here in the UK, which is a boutique consultancy who've got um, a fantastic brand presence in the energy market and financial services markets and are expanding in many other areas as well. And I know you've had a couple of guests from Beringa on previously, so uh, I'm sure your your listeners will have heard, heard of Beringa. Brilliant. No, certainly have, David. And obviously, you know, mentioned it a few times from my time there, you know, thought very fondly of it. And like you say, it's, it's incredible, the rate of growth. And you'll tell me more about sort of how you played a part in that. And I like you say, I think those three chapters are going to be really interesting to dig into. Before we go on to that, though, and, and this is in part to the research that we do before, I'm always interested in things that crop up and just keen, the slightly out of the blue or different. And, and a couple of these relate to your younger life. So if actually this is sort of a period that you've closed, stop me, but particularly keen to understand, let's start with sort of your school days and actually your sporting approach. Because, you know, I know you're sort of, you're still into your fitness now. You're a very keen sportsman back when you were younger. And actually, you know, we're big into rowing and, and you know, not just having a bit of fun doing it. You got to Henley and, you know, you'll have to tell me how you did, but, you know, you got to, to what is sort of the, the top of the top at school age rowing and beyond. And I just love to hear more about what impact that had for you? You know, why were you so focused on team sport when you were younger? And particularly looking towards when you, you know, you moved on into the world of work, what were the sort of characteristics that that taught you that you took forward? You know, I know, particularly for anyone listening with kids, I'm just fascinated what those sort of early years helped you do that really sort of, you know, stood with you as you went into your career and, and got you to where you are today. Yeah, very happy to, Nick. And I feel kind of at this point, I might need to lie down on a, a couch or something <laughs> if we're going that far back. But let me try and get the memory going and share some background for you. So I think just just for context, when I my school was a highly academic school. And whilst I was bright, 
I was certainly nowhere near the cream of the crop. And indeed, I think there was actually a, a guy in my school who spoke fluent Latin, which, whilst not the no, most useful uh, skill you might pick up these days, actually shows the kind of academic kind of proficiency of a lot of the people at the school. And, and as I say, I, I enjoyed school and I enjoyed the academic side. But equally, I really thrived on sport, as you say. And started off, you know, doing rugby and all sorts of other things like lots of boys do when they're at school. But in the first year of, of, of the school, I actually tried out rowing and just really loved it. Loved getting out at lunchtime onto the river. Loved being part of a team. There's eight of us in the boat and having some, some good fun together as well as working really hard. And I think, um, you know, with the benefits of hindsight, which is always a beautiful thing, there's a few things which probably that, that rowing experience taught me. The first was around kind of strategic planning. Because if you think at the beginning of a season, which might be in November or December, you'd be making goals eight or nine months hence for the pinnacle of the season. And at that stage in your life, when you're 14, 15, 16, that's actually quite a long period of time. Secondly, I've mentioned the teamwork, and that's how do you get the best out of yourself, but equally, how do you work with others to bring the best out of them? Because in a rowing boat, you're only as, as fast as the eight people in the, in the team. There's also kind of inner drive and determination, I think, and uh, you know th that kind of drive to to be better and to learn every day and to work out okay what are the things that are going well and you can improve upon, but equally what are the things perhaps you know you can do differently and what are the opportunities to get better. There's also that dedication of really sticking to something and and that resilience which comes from dedication. And lastly, probably Nick, the the whole element of balance of life. How do you balance? Um, academic work and also your career with other with other interests that you might have outside of work. And I think, you know, as we get busy throughout our careers, it's all too easy to perhaps lose some of that balance from time to time. And it's, I guess it just taught me that, yes, you can balance it. And whilst it's hard getting up when it's dark in the in the winter mornings and getting to the weights room for 7 a.m. and then spending an, an hour and a half on the on the river in the evening when it's when it's dark again you know that it teaches you that actually you can do that and you can balance that with all your academics and everything else yeah i think you know to that point there was some really great lessons that strategic planning and, and you're quite right you know when you're, you're 15 16 that school year is a lifetime you think about the next summer as if it is a decade away so i think some really key you know key points in there and i i want to come on to your point on hobbies because i know now you've still got hobbies that you're passionate about and i think it's a really key key part of balance i guess i know you've obviously got a son who's probably that same age now you know is that the advice you give to him of actually get out there, do your sport, get involved? And and maybe for anyone listening, you know, is that the sort of thing they should be helping their kids with? I guess maybe what advice would you give to anyone whose kids are thinking about sport, but maybe, you know, they're trying to understand, will that impact the academics? You know, is that going to get them to university? Yeah, what, what would your take be? I guess my, my advice to my son has always been to find something you're passionate about and something you enjoy. And to see sport as something you enjoy, and and we've been really lucky, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later, that, you know, he's always gone to a good school. He's always enjoyed his rugby as well, although with kids getting a lot bigger now, he's 15. They're obviously not playing at the moment for very obvious reasons, but I don't know whether he'll carry on playing. It's funny, he actually this summer, it was his birthday in, in August, and I said to Max, you know, what would you like to do for the day? And at the time I was on, uh, you know, getting ready to start at Barnet Waddingham. So I had some time off as well. And he said he'd been doing this rowing camp, actually, which is just something he'd enjoyed. And he said, Dad, would you like to come rowing with me? And uh, at first I said yes. And then I kind of thought about it and thought, crikey, I, I literally haven't stepped into a rowing boat since I was 16, getting out the boat at Henley when we'd just come second in the final. 
And so it's quite a big, big psychological thing to say, actually, <laughs> do I really want to do this? Because I could make a complete fool of myself. But with hindsight, actually, we, we went to the rowing club that he'd been in just uh, on the river in, in near Chiswick Bridge, actually. And uh, I jumped in the boat. And whilst I was a bit nervous, I have to say, actually, uh, you know, we, we had a lovely row for about an hour and a half up and down. It was a beautiful day, really still water, yeah. sunny. And it was just a fantastic experience. And when he went to that rowing camp, he asked me, Dad, Dad, what do you think I should be doing? What's your advice? And I said, just enjoy it. Just have fun. And I think sport should be fun, should be something people enjoy. And yes, if you're super talented and super passionate and you want to take it to that next level, then please, by all means, do. I mean, we when we were in Australia, Max had the chance of learning surfing on Bondi Beach, but he also did a lot of swimming. It's obviously a big sport there. And when we came back, he'd actually got to a county development squad. So he was really doing well. But he got to the point where, to be honest, he just didn't have the dedication for it. He was supposed to go five times a week. He was supposed to go on Friday evening, Saturday early morning. And at that point, we just said, well, look, if you're not enjoying it as much anymore, find something you do enjoy. I think a really good point. And yeah, swimming and rowing are quite similar in that respect of the the effort it requires. I, I was always a rugby player myself and, and quite simply because the training to playing ratio was for me, much better than rowing. I think the uh, the dedication I saw, particularly at university, my friends do for rowing, you know, like you say, up in the mornings, early evenings, late. Um, I certainly didn't have that. But I think to your point, you know, just doing something you enjoy and until you stop enjoying it. And and maybe moving towards more of you know your life now. But you you mentioned earlier, I think a really key point around actually keeping a hobby and and doing something that keeps that work life balance. And I know for you, your passion is soul music, and maybe we'll come on to your DJing past at some point in in today. But you know, I think you said you've got something like ten thousand records. I mean, my first question, David, is how big a room do you need to to fit those? But actually, then why is that such an important thing for you, particularly in you know what you do now, but what you your career you know that you talk through. You've always had very senior, high-pressure roles. You know, a lot of people would think, well, you've not got time to go looking in the archives for records and and sort of investigating that. Like, why has it been so important for you to keep that hobby? And then, yeah, how big is the room in the house to keep ten thousand records? I think maybe just by way of context, again, I mean, I I got into music when I was quite young. Actually, I, I used to play the drums um, to quite well. I started off actually playing the violin, and then after about six months, I said to the violin teacher, "I'm going to start learning drums." And she said, yeah, I think you'll be much better suited to that, was her, her <laughs> feedback to me, which um, was was good motivation, actually. But I started learning the drums and really got into it. I think I was about six or seven at the time. And actually, we formed a little band when I was about 10. And we oh, we're, toured going, we're to, going way back here, David. Oh, we're going way back. We, we, we toured to one of my um, friends' uh, living rooms, I think, and played a, played an end-of-day <laughs> concert for our parents. But over the years, I, I really enjoyed playing drums and got reasonably good, was in a couple of bands. But as part of that, I got quite into rock music initially, bands like Led Zeppelin and Cream, because they're well known for their um, strong drummers who are some of the best regarded as some of the best in the world. But then one day I was actually working up in in London. I used to work every summer holiday to earn some money and I went to a record shop. So I used to buy records to drum along to at home. And uh, I saw this uh, record called Ultimate Breaks and Beats. And so I bought it and it was it had some kind of James Brown on it and it had some jazz funk and it had a load of jazz stuff. And it was stuff I'd never really heard of, as well as some rock and just this whole variety of music. I was like, crikey, this is a really hard to drum to, but B, really, really lovely music. And so I went back to the record shop, you know, the following week and bought another of this album. And it turns out that this is like one of the seminal 
sets of records for hip hop today. So about 80 or 90% of hip hop tunes, the drum beat behind them is based on this 30 odd record collection. Um, which is incredible, really. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Yeah. So, but through that, I just got into a whole different world of music, particularly around funk and soul and jazz, as I say. And then just started getting curious about, okay, well, how do I find out more? And back in those days, of course, you didn't have the internet. Um, you had to rely on magazines. You had to rely on word of mouth. But also hanging out at record fairs, going to record shops, quite specialist shops. And I was brought up in West London. There's lots of, of shops in West London and other parts of London. Uh, down in Brixton and, and other areas and used to spend the weekends, you know, going up to those record shops with my pocket money or the money I'd saved up when I was working the holidays and looking for something, something to buy. And it just kind of, kind of went from there. So that's, that's kind of the background in terms of the room. I mean, my records were in storage for quite some considerable time, I have to say. And with IKEA, it's quite easy to store things these days. To that point, though, David, kind of, you know, the, the point around when you were young and passionate about it, like, I get that. And, you know, we all had those sort of things. For me, it was Pokemon cards. And I did just sell my collection. And anyone listening or your son might be a little young for this, but they're worth quite a lot of money now. You know, it's amazing what a little bit of card will go for on eBay. I guess the, the reason I, you know, I flagged that is what was it that kept you going with the records? Because, you know, at some point we all get to a point where you get into work and suddenly, you know, that takes priority. And hobbies can, you know, drift away. I've spoken to tons of, particularly in consulting, where, you know, you travel a lot. I've spoken to tons of people who just hobbies, you know, fell away. I had this happen. You know, I went on projects away from home and the rugby dropped off. And I, I think it's a really key thing in sort of that unique point we were talking about of you've kept going. You know, when it would have been easier to sell the record collection and leave it, you put it in storage, you know, I've got it in the house. Why have you kept doing it? And almost why is having that hobby and that break away from work so important to you? To my mind, Particularly in consulting, it it, it is a, a full-on industry. And we all have periods in our time in, in any roles in consulting that are completely full-on and full gas, where you don't have um, as much time for the hobbies and the things you're passionate about. Equally, it's not an easy industry to operate in and, and can be quite taxing, both both personally, professionally, and, and for you and a family. And so I think one of the skills from resilience to think about is how do you keep yourself grounded? And what are the things that keep you having a sense of balance and perspective? Because sometimes you know what it's like if you've got you know lots of projects on, you're in a really challenging client situation, perhaps you, know, you don't have all the people around you might want, you feel like your back's a bit against the wall. The question is, how do you pick yourself up dust yourself off and, and start all over the game, uh, to quote Nat King Cole, I think. It is something you need to, to think about. And I think music for me has always been that thing that if I get up early in the morning and go for a walk, you can plug in your, your iPhone these days, your Walkman back in the day and listen to some music and you can just get carried away to a different place. And that just helps retain that sense of perspective on life and work. I think that resilience point's a really powerful one. And like you say, it I can't remember the name of the law, but it's, you know, work will fill the time you allocate to it. And so if you give all of your, you know, if you don't have something else to fill that time, it's easy to overwork and just, oh, I'll do that last email. I think particularly right now when we're all stuck at home and, and frankly, we're running out of Netflix series to watch. So having that hobby that separates that, I think, feel, you know, is, is really key. And like you say, gives you something that just you can break away and you know, keeps you grounded, which is, yeah, I think a really critical point. 10,000 records, I'm still you know, in awe of what that looks like. But you know, maybe, maybe you can send me a picture after this, David. <laughs> I'm keen to turn to actually sort of some of the big junctures in your consulting career, because I think there's been a number of steps in your career when I was sort of, you know, doing my research, when we were chatting that 
I think are really interesting and, and particularly for my listeners who are people who are on the journey that you've been on. And, and maybe we, we start with the sort of first jump because that sort of move from senior manager into industry is something that you find you know, quite a few people do. They decide actually at this point in life, consulting isn't for me, I'm going to make a jump. But often they'll become the strategy manager or the operational improvement manager. And actually it can almost be a place that their sort of career slows down, if I'm honest. And I think the thing that really struck me when we were talking is you made that transition into industry very successfully. You know, you ultimately went on to lead the 3,000-person LMP ops business for um, LBG, which is no mean feat. But actually, if it's not too far a jump back, I'd, I'd love to understand more about that time for you, and particularly how you were able to make that transition and almost looking back, what were some of those challenges and what some of the advice you'd give to someone now thinking, I'm going to make a leap into industry and I want to make it as successful as possible? Yeah, absolutely, Nick. And I think maybe if I set some context first, just for your listeners, at the time, I, as you say, I was a senior manager at Accenture. I'd had kind of eight years experience at Accenture, done some fabulous projects. So I'd begun to develop a specialism in insurance, but very much on the kind of change management side of things. In other words, target operating models and leading teams to deliver operational effectiveness, operational efficiency. And those have been the experiences I'd enjoyed most in my latter career at, at Accenture. And I think from that, I developed a kind of yearning to understand a little bit more about my clients and how they thought. And I always thought at the time as a, as a plucky young consultant, actually, um, you know, why, why isn't my project the thing that's top of my client's agenda, yet they seem to be distracted with all these other things. And they've said it's their top priority, but then they spend all this time, you know, 90% of their time doing all this other stuff. So, so why is that? So perhaps a bit of naivety on my point at, uh, at that point in my career. But equally, from a, a life perspective, we also wanted to settle down and start a family. And so, so a transition to a, an industry role made sense. I was quite thoughtful, though. And, and like you say, Nick, lots of people in consultancies, I think, become quite specialist quite early on in their career. And I'd always tried my best to retain as much generalism whilst having a couple of, of strengths and a couple of spikes where I, I was kind of deeper. But to try and retain that sense of generalism, to not not cut off any options. And I think that that, that point of variety has always been a, a kind of constant and a theme throughout my career. In terms of the transition itself, I mean, I have to say it was a massive learning curve. I went from leading a team of about 30 Accenture people and clients to leading a team of about seven or 800 customer-facing people who are highly passionate, highly driven. We were going through quite a large claims transformation at the time. And I was looking after all of the customer services in, in Lloyd's general insurance business, um, which included claims. I remember the first flood event was certainly a huge learning for me. But taking a step back and probably, you know, with the benefits of hindsight, there were a few things that stuck out as probably key learnings for me. I think firstly, I think I, I had some great help and support. So I had some really supportive colleagues, some really stretching mentors, but equally did have some great external coaching support as well. And I, th I think, you know, wherever you are in your career, always think of who are the people who can help and advise me? Who are those, those gurus, those mentors, those people who can challenge you, who can support you, who can inspire you, and who can actually sometimes just help you to think about things slightly differently. I think secondly, the second big learning was around what I'd call leadership pipeline. 
And what I mean by that, it's actually a book, which I was, I was digging out, actually, because um, I know you sometimes ask your guests about books. We might come on to that later. We, we, we will come on to that later, definitely. <laughs> OK, I'll look forward to that. So, so but just as a, a precursor to that, there's a book called The Leadership Pipeline. And what this describes is throughout your career, you go through different leadership transitions. You start off managing yourself. So if you think of yourself as an analyst or someone brand new to consulting, it's all about you managing yourself. And actually, you know, doing great work and being passionate and driven and producing good quality work and being part of the team. But actually, your performance is more judged on you. You then get to the point where you manage others. And actually, that's about unlearning some of the things which have made you successful in the past, which is quite a hard skill to do. But then relearning new skills in terms of how do you bring the best out in others. You then move on to managing managers, which is actually where you've got maybe one or two layers of, of management and leadership where you, you can't directly control the team because you've got to work through your managers. The question is, again, what are those new supplementary skills you've got to learn? And then when you lead a function, you actually get up to functional leadership and beyond that, it's business leadership. But the book just describes really succinctly that transition. I thought that was a really key kind of learning for me. I'm going to hold on that if you don't mind, David, because I think yeah, this, of course. it's fascinating in itself. And yeah, I really like the way you describe it of sort of analyst, you're managing yourself. And then as you go up to manage people, you, you unlearn some things and learn some things. And and maybe with that frame, what are some of those key things? Take it yourself or some of the people you've, you know, you've mentored now, you know, you're at the other end of that journey of what are some of those key skills you have to learn and unlearn at each stage? You know, what is it that the analyst going up to a people manager unlearns and then, as you know, they need to learn to get to the next stage as you go on? As I say, when you're when you're an analyst, as an example, what makes you successful is the quality of your your personal work. Yes, of course, you need to be a good team player and all of those types of things. But actually, your performance typically is judged by the quality of your individual work. And I think so for lots of people, success and fear are quite closely related. And when you transition to managing others, actually, you have to let go of the thing that has made you successful because otherwise you're stifling your team member. And what I see is, particularly when I, I, I coach and mentor people who are earlier on in their career, one of the things I think some people struggle with is, is releasing and letting go, yet putting the checks and balances around, in other words, coaching in the right way, to provide not only challenge but support, but equally to give people the free space to make mistakes and learn, because we've all made mistakes throughout our career. But how do you do that when your performance is, is judged on someone who's working for you and it's that first transition is really quite hard i think that second transition then when you move from from managing others to managing managers you've then got to think really long and hard about how do i make sure i build the right leadership capability in my team in other words how do i recruit and develop the people with the right the same values as me the same drive as me the same aspirations as me but equally how do i recruit people who compensate for some of my personal weaknesses and how do i actually bring people into the team who aren't just mirrors of me because otherwise then it'll be a, a boring place to operate and will be totally undiverse and just not very exciting but actually you'll be much stronger when you have people who can ha perhaps pick up the things which you're not so so great at because we're not none of us are perfect at everything and then when you go on to functional leadership that's that's a whole new dimension where you start to take on actually whilst you're of course focused on your function and that side of things you're actually thinking about the broader business and all the other bit functions in the business so for instance when i was leading the customer service team it's surprising you, you kind of think to yourself well 
you know, could 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 a person in that situation actually just be a real um, specialist in customer service? Well, well, potentially as a kind of head of, but actually once you get to functional leadership, you're much more into you're part of the team now running a business. And you need to have good skills in risk, in compliance, in HR, in finance, in marketing, in sales. You need to be able to contribute to that running the overall business. And that's probably another key transition to work through is how do you gain that that real breadth and be competent enough in that, that very diverse set of areas, yet equally specialist enough in your own area so that you have that right balance of, of functional and business leadership. I think some great points in there, David. And I think something that really stuck with me, you know, as you went through that hierarchy, if you like, is that transition from, you know, almost managing time and particularly your time to, to going on to leading teams, leading people, particularly as you go up those sort of functional steps. And I'd be really interested, actually, you've sat both sides of the fence is how does that almost evolution change on the consulting side versus the industry side? You know, is it the same steps? Is it different steps? And where do you see some of the challenges people find in making that jump from consulting into that hierarchy in an industry role? I think firstly, as consultants, we're, we're all quite proud, aren't we? And I, th- I think the point I made earlier around not being shy to ask for help and not being shy to put the right support around you is is really quite a big a, a big step to take. I think possibly that the second piece is thinking about the breadth of your role. So being really thoughtful, and you mentioned earlier that potentially some of the people you'd had exposure to transition to industry roles and perhaps you felt their careers had stalled slightly. I, I think perhaps they went into niche roles. You're making me feel terrible now. No, no, no. I feel, no, I feel I, like I, I've been insulting people there. That wasn't the intention. No, no, so. no, not at all. And I wasn't trying to insinuate that. I was just that, That's just what I heard. But um, perhaps people specialised a little bit too soon and, and didn't necessarily think through that breadth point that I made around how do you build that breadth. I think, though, the, probably the key biggest learning for me, particularly in that first six months, six to 12 months at Lloyd's, was around self-awareness and actually understanding yourself because if you don't understand yourself and your innate drivers and your innate values, it's going to be really hard to lead other people. And possibly the last one, which um, there's maybe a small small anecdote I can share as well, is around communications. And what I mean by that is as consultants, you know, we, we, we tend to develop our own language. You know, and we've all played uh, consulting buzzword bingo from time to time, haven't we? Um, but we do develop our own language. You know, the, the number of uh, TLAs or three-letter acronyms that we constantly invent makes it quite impenetrable, actually, to people transitioning the other way around from industry back in, or into consulting. But also, at times, makes it hard for, for clients to understand us. And I remember probably the biggest lesson I had on this was um, I was probably about six or nine months into my first role at Lloyd's. And every year we used to hold um, frontline colleague events where in groups of between 50 and 100, all of the frontline members of my team would go off site. And this year it's actually being held in a marquee out the back of our office in um, South Wales. And at the time, as I mentioned earlier, we were going through a claims transformation in our GI business, uh, which I was leading. And I think um, one of the team asked me this quite straightforward question around, Okay, so we're you know going through this change, and what does that mean for roles? And I remember I just in, instinctively answered as a consultant. So I talked about operating models and differentiation from our competitors, and the, the kind of strategic capabilities we're trying to build, and um, the synergies between different types, and the and the, the outcomes and benefits we're aiming for. 
And I remember she looked at me at the end and said, listen, I, I think you're a nice guy, so I'm going to kind of trust you, but I didn't understand a word you said. <laughs> um, and that just brought home to me that point around communications and actually, you know, learning plain English is a really good skill, particularly um, in industry roles. Um, and just making sure you're always thoughtful about that in your interactions with clients as well. Yeah, I mean, as someone who runs a marketing agency for consulting firms, David, I, I spend a lot of my day explaining that you know to to consultants is the word operating model rarely means anything in you know in client organisations and particularly like you say on the front line and there's a lot of actual research on this particularly you look at the presidential election that's just gone for instance if you look back at all of the presidential elections to you know to date the the winning candidate for something like the last 100 years is the one who spoke in the simplest language because it appeals to the most people and and also i guess to your point consultants in industry can sometimes have a not a bad reputation but you know they're seen as consultants and if you want to fit in you need to speak in the way that your colleagues in the in the company you're working in do not in the consultant speak because it'll signpost that you're you're not one of them so to speak which is i guess to your point if you're trying to bed into a a new business as a you know so in a line role you really don't want to stand out as the former consultant you want to stand out as the you know the new person in the company who's part of that culture i guess absolutely and i i think if you fast forward a few years from there and perhaps you know reflecting back on the time at EY which we might come to too shortly I just remember that whole point, the point I mentioned on breadth. So how do you become a, a technical specialist in something? Because that's what a client's ultimately paying for, yet have enough breadth to be credible at a really senior level. I mean, that point was really brought home to me when um, we went to see global multinational insurer and actually their head office in, in Sydney. I don't want to say any names, of course, but we actually went to see um, the chief legal counsel a great, great client called Peter, excellent, excellent guy. And we actually worked with him for a couple of years. But I remember it was the first meeting with him and we went in to talk actually about legal operating models, funnily enough, and a global legal transformation and how you, you, you kind of think that through. And I remember before we got started, and of course, like diligent consultants, we produced some slides and, and a great story. He said, oh, David, I'm really pleased you're here because uh, I've been talking to my my colleague in London and uh, I just want you to explain to me about the FCA and the PRA and their their stance on matters X, Y and Z. And his the client's perception was, well, here we've got a partner from EY. I expect him to know this stuff. And I think that's 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 probably the best consultants when I was a client, going back to being a client, was the best consultants could talk enough about a wide range of topics, but equally knew when to phone a friend. Whereas I think some of the most frustrating meetings was where people couldn't answer anything apart from the one really spiky topic that they were thinking about and didn't have that breadth. So I think that breadth point is really, really important to think about in your career. And I think that's always a, a choice for consultants is specialism versus generalism. But just just think of it's it's easy to specialize, I think, a little bit too early, perhaps in your career. Think about what's what's the long game here? Where am I really trying to get to? And you know, how do, how do I balance that specialism and generalism? I think I think a really good anecdote, David. I think great advice. Yeah, and I say that maybe you're preaching to the, the choir or the converted here. I'm, I'm like you. I'm a generalist who probably I've never been good enough at anything to specialize. But like you find those benefits of you know, generalization. And, and time again, when I speak to, to guests for this show and, and others in my network, you know, that point comes out is your clients. One of my previous guests talked about the T-shaped consultant, the sort of, you know, a bit about everything. And then you've got your sort of deep vertical as, as well. Eh? I'm interested to come on to, to your point around, you know, how you progress in industry. And I think having done it on both sides of the fence, you will have quite a unique perspective on this of personally, and I speak for myself here because I don't want any listeners to be offended, is 
when I was working in consulting, the thing that I liked about it is the career path was was very simple in terms of structure, is the steps were all laid out and provided you did everything at each step. You knew if you did this, you'd get to manager, senior manager, et cetera, up to partner. And I think the thing that always, when I looked at industry, and I know I'm not, you know, I doubt I'm alone in this, it always seemed like just a maze. You know, how do you, there's no clear career path. Now I have friends in industry now and sort of, I just don't understand it. You know, I don't get how you go from, you know, the shop floor to the the top office or however you, you navigate in between. And you've done it. You know, you went in at managing 700 people. You went to the top of the operations function managing 3,000. I'd love to understand how that sort of industry progression is different from consulting. And to your point around advice for people who have made that move, you know, what is that advice? What should people be doing differently to successfully navigate industry progression that maybe is not the same as what they do to navigate progression in a consulting firm? I think it's a great question, Nick. And again, I think there are some similarities between consulting and industry, but equally some some important differences. So the similarities are, I think the career structure is within functions in different client organizations. So for instance, take the operations function or the HR function or the, or the, the, the finance function. I think there's generally a sense of structure and a, a sense of hierarchy. The big difference though, of course, is consultancies, so long as there's, they're growing, have the capacity to promote people at certain points in their career. Whereas actually in client organizations, that's not always the case because you have a org chart. And again, unless you're growing or doing something different, like perhaps running a change program or creating a new function or creating a new capability or a new competence, you don't necessarily have that same capacity in other words, that same ability to promote people. So that's probably one important difference. And I think possibly the thing to think about then is actually not to only think about linear routes in the organization, but to think about what are some of those skills and those capabilities that I've got, but equally the things I'm really passionate and about and enjoy, because that is probably the most important thing, is making sure you're doing something you're passionate and you enjoy, because so, you'll throw your whole self into it. But thinking, okay, so I might be, for instance, the head of customer service right now, but what are the key competencies and skills I've got? And actually, where else could they be applicable in the organization? And how can I create opportunities? I mean, you can't create something necessarily from scratch. But again, think a bit laterally. Think about what are the big change programs? What's on the, the Exco's agenda? And what are some of those opportunities that might be coming up? And how could I create something, perhaps something new? The other dynamic to think about in client organizations and take Lloyd's as an, as an example is Lloyd's Banking Group is obviously a large universal bank. They have a, a, a commercial banking operation. They've got a personal banking operation. They've got a mortgages business. At the time, they had some international divisions, although they've scaled that back. There are you know, a lot of internal functions. So there's a lot of parts to the group. And I think that's the other thing to think about is don't just think about your business. Think about your entire group and the entire universe. And that will give you lots more optionality. And I think that's the, the thing I'm, I'm alluding to, Nick, is probably just in summary, create options for yourself rather than just one route. Because one route is going to be very binary in terms of outcomes. Whereas actually, if you create optionality, that'll give you some choices, but it equally will make you think very differently about your development. What are the things I'm really good at? How could I apply those? But equally, what are the things, some of the things I need to learn if I think about some of those career choices in the future? And then it's back to probably good old fashioned networking at the end of the day is staying really in touch with 
people not only in your part of the business, but equally all those other parts of the business. So I hope that's kind of answered your question. Yeah, it, it does, David. And, you know, I think your point on actually they're not as different as maybe, you know, particularly me as, as a host of a show like this tries to make out. And I think your point, you know, just it dawned on me, but it's probably obvious to you and many of our listeners is just like in consulting, you climb in part through your business development, your networking and, you know, bringing business in through those contacts. I think, you know, what, what I'm hearing from yourself is you need to take a similar approach to an internal, you know, a line role in a big organization, actually network with the people across the business, look at those different options. And I, I think, like you say, the, that critical point of don't close off options too early, you know, particularly in today's world where, I mean, gosh, things like data science didn't exist five years ago. And, you know, it's the, the hottest thing in, in most organizations right now. It, you need to keep yourself open to these opportunities because those are some of those growing areas you can capitalize on. I, I think that, you know, really good advice. And yeah, maybe they're not quite as different as I thought they were, you know, back when I was working in consulting. I want to now turn to you touched on EY and I want to turn to you know that part of of your life but I think again and and some of this might just be you know my judgments but I'm sure some of my listeners are thinking you know typically in today's world everything's simplified and you think that look you get to the top of a business and you stay there you know you you made it to the top of operations in LBG got 3000 people most people some people just think well David that's your life set you know stay there go to the golf club whatever the metaphor is but you obviously decided to make a big jump. And at, at the same time, you left that to go back into consulting and you left UK entirely and went over to Australia. You know, that if it was one little, you know, some people do one jump, I rarely hear of people doing two. And and I'd love to just get, again, you know, looking back at that time, what led to that? Why did you decide it was the time to make a move? And, and particularly, how did you come to that decision? Do you remember any of the questions you asked yourself, you, you discussed with your wife or your mentors? Because it's such a big decision, both moving, what do they say, sort of the big life decisions are getting married, moving job and moving house. And you did two of those and will give you a bonus for moving country. Like that's a big, big decision. How did you decide it was right for you? And then what questions did you ask to make sure it was the right decision for you and your family? Great question once again, Nick. So thank you. Um, you certainly give me a good workout this morning, that's for sure. <laughs> so I think thinking back, and it's probably again, perhaps helpful to to share some context. So I'd been at Lloyd's at, at, at this point by eight years. And as you as, as you say, gone on to some really big roles. But this was during the global financial crisis. And it was, it was during the time when banks in particular were under quite a lot of scrutiny. They'd gone into part public ownership. And I remember one Sunday lunch where we had some friends around at our house and, and we were talking about banks. And and the husband suddenly started ranting about banks and bankers. And, and I was kind of thinking, hold on a sec, uh, you're right round at our house having Sunday lunch. Let's, let's just, just relax. So it's a little that, awkward for a Sunday lunch, isn't it? It, it was, but it was, that was the general mood. And the regulatory scrutiny which came on off the back of that wasn't quite intense. So it'd been a really great eight years, lots to be super duper proud of, but felt like the right time, right time for a move. And I think what, what I thought about first was, well, what is it I'm looking for? And I think I really just missed that variety of consulting, the opportunity to work at an industry level, not just within one firm, the opportunity to make a real difference across a range of clients and the opportunity to work with, you know, super bright, talented people. That's not to say you don't get super talented people in, in industry, but you generally consultancies do attract 
the kind of to some extent the cream of the crop. So I think I think that that was part of the driver. And then we started thinking about okay, perhaps a, a return to to consulting. And I did phone up phone up some friends actually who obviously moved on to EY and a range of other consultancies and started sounding them out about a return to consulting. And I remember a EY, well, a couple of the companies actually were like, great, David, love to have you back. You know, your industry experience would be fantastic. We can see setting up a, a COO type function and perhaps an operational transformation type function. And I said, well, that's fantastic. But actually, I'd love to, but actually equally want to get as a family some international experience at the same time. And what we thought about was, you know, what are some of the places in the world that have a great opportunity to work, but equally somewhere you could see we could have a good life as well. So where would my my wife be happy? Where would we be happy as as a family? My son was seven at the time. And we wanted to make sure he had a good experience for his life as well. So those were some of the kind of the quite practical questions. We I've, asked got to, I've got to ask her that, David, because I love practical on this show. And, and as much as you're willing to share, I'd love to just know those criteria that you benchmark on. Was it good weather, good climate? Was, what were the criteria and what was the shortlist? We basically thought about, well, let's, th- let's think about, let's anchor on a few different things. Let's anchor on the role. And we thought if we are going to make a, a move, certainly it needs to be to a company like to take take EY as a as 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 a brilliant example with a fantastic brand in its local market. Because as an individual, you won't have any personal brand. You'll be leveraging the brand of of that company coming in. A company with great clients, great network. So those were some of the kind of market dynamics, if you like. It was also a I always think with consulting you need to think about what's the opportunity, what's the what's the need I'm I'm coming in to fulfil, particularly at a at a partner type level. And in the case of EY in in Sydney, it was it was serendipitous because they were looking for someone to help start their kind of operational transformation, business transformation practice, which didn't exist. Um, so even though I was new to the market, actually I knew that. Other partners were really close to the market. EY always had a fantastic brand presence and a whole host of great clients right across financial services and insurance. But I bought perhaps that expertise in business transformation, some of the industry focus, and also stories from the UK. So stories across geographies, as you, as you know, in any consulting business are, are really relevant. And I think the Australia looked to the, to the UK. In terms of you know, some of the questions for us as a family, I mean, for us to think about as a family was around Max's education, just thinking very practically, thinking about, yes, the weather does play an important part because, um, you know, you can spend uh, 10 months of, of the year on a beach and having a nice time at the weekends. And that's a great experience to have, but also one where, you know, language wouldn't necessarily be an immediate barrier for us. So, so that's one thing to think about as well. And also culturally, do we feel we can fit in? I mean, much like a question you'd, you'd ask yourself about any organisation, um, you need to think about that on a kind of cultural level at a, at a national level as well. And, you know, I've been lucky enough throughout my career to work in many different countries with many different people from different backgrounds, different different experiences. And I think that richness, that diversity, I think, was also something to, to consider is will it bring, you know, a, an element of diversity and another another interesting experience to build on. So those are some of the, the kind of practical considerations as well. I really like those. And I don't think anyone would grudge you wanting to go somewhere where the, the temperatures are warmer and you can spend your weekends on the beach and having barbecues, particularly as we record this in the depths of winter in the UK. And to that point, you know, you said you, you wanted to get some international experience or just something, you know, some life experience. What was it that that gave you? Again, you know, 
having had guests on here who've done similar and equally, you know, spoken to people in my network who um denage, you know, should I go, shouldn't I go? For anyone who's on the fence, what are the things for you that actually, you know, that experience of just working and living in another country really gave you and, you know, you would encourage people who might be on the fence to go and get and sort of make that leap? What were those key things for you? There's a whole host, actually, Nick, and some personal and some obviously career and professionally focused. I mean, by way of context, my mum's Turkish and I was brought up you know, by my mum and my dad, spending a, a long time in the summer holidays, you know, up to two months, sleeping on the floors with my relatives in in small flats in Ankara, the capital of Turkey, and listening to the, the mosques calling people to prayer and normally stiflingly hot. We didn't have air conditioning, so the windows were obviously open. And normally in the background, there was a, a poorly dubbed version of Dallas or Dynasty or some other American show. But I guess that was my upbringing. And I was just used to diversity. It's never been a thing that's been kind of different or it's actually been something throughout my life. I've always, we've always as a family and as a person been intrigued and interested by people from different backgrounds, different experiences, um, because it, I think it just makes the world such a richer place. So there was that kind of innate drive to experience something new. And particularly, I've always found um, Asia Pacific as a, as a place absolutely fantastic. And Sydney, I think, was a good hub into Asia Pacific. So I did have the opportunity, which is fantastic, to work in Hong Kong, in Singapore, the Philippines, and a, a number of other places as well. Um, and so I think it just gave that cross-cultural experience of working much more consciously uh, with different nationalities, different cultures, different experiences. And I remember one, I, I ended up leading some quite big global transformations where one of those, I had a team in Sydney, we had a team in Hong Kong, we had a team in New York, a team in in London, all simultaneously working, which is not great for sleep, frankly. Oh, sorry, on the same time zone. So not as in their time zones, as in like nine to five was no, universal no, no. across the No, everyone was in their own time zone. So what that meant is, is being in Sydney is you'd always be up first thing in the morning and uh, last thing at night on calls because you'd get it either end of the day. But I think um, just having that that really rich cross-cultural opportunity to work with different people from different experiences was just fantastic and to live in a different environment for my son a different educational system a, a different group of friends and he'd have met a different set of experiences it was fantastic for him and as a family we we're just really lucky we met loads of welcoming warm really friendly people who really em embraced us as a family and, and we had a great experience yeah, I think a great story. And for anyone who's listening, I think just reassures them because you know, sadly, right now we can't go anywhere, be it you know, in the UK or outside. But like you say, the, the things you gain from that diversity, I mean, my wife and I, we, we went as far as London, but you know, I, we're very fortunate in this country that we have one of the most diverse you know, capital cities in the world. And just that breadth of different cultures and, and people is so important. And like you say, actually going abroad lets you see that and appreciate it. And I imagine you mentioned on that program where you were running sort of globally. I mean, equally, did you find, to your point around breadth earlier, did you find that having worked, you know, in, I think you mentioned Hong Kong, but worked in Asia, worked in sort of Australia and the UK, actually, was it easier to manage sort of global programs of that scale when you've got that cultural understanding of what those countries are like and the people there are like? Is that another thing that you found sort of made those programs easier for you? I think so. But you always learn. I mean, culture is such a rich thing. And there's so many facets to culture that you're always learning. And you're always finding out new things. I mean, again, again, I might be trailing a book here. But one of the books, I think I actually first read at university. But equally, I think is 
has been one I return to quite a bit over the years is, is a book by a guy called Gert Hofstede, which is called Cultures and Organizations. And I think why this book's interesting is Hofstede, I, th- I, th- I think it was from the, the Netherlands ori- originally, and he did, I think it was back in the 70s, a cross-cultural survey where he looked to map different cultures on different dimensions. And uh, he, he produced some very nice consulting two-by-two matrices where you could compare different cultures. And I know there is a risk, of course, with any mapping of, of, of cultures of, of stereotyping and all sorts of other things that, you, of course, you want to avoid. But equally, it gave a bit of science and a bit of richness to understanding, at least at a, at a kind of starting point, understanding different national cultures and why they might be different, because it got beneath the skin in terms of not just it's different because of A and B, it's actually what are the deep innate beliefs and values that people within those cultures hold and how does that therefore shape their behaviours? And I think that, that that was a really interesting book. So to take one of those examples, uh, one of the dimensions was masculinity versus femininity. And he described some of those more masculine cultures where it's kind of macho, wacho, up or out, got to stay working late beyond the time of my boss, etc. And then some of those more feminine cultures, which perhaps are more caring, more meritocratic in, in many ways, for instance, some of the Scandinavian cult, uh, countries. And you'll see that right through the health system and through, you know, I lived in Copenhagen for, for six months. And, and generally, there's a lot less hierarchy, a lot less distance between people. And, and, and equally, the, the wealth is shared much more widely in those cultures. And I think, I think that's, that's just really interesting as one dimension. Again, it's one survey and one data point. But it, at least, you know, for me, it's given me a very basic first grounding but then of course when you throw yourself into a new culture you learn all sorts of things as you always do yeah i love the book recommendation and um i'll share all the links and the the recommendations uh on the show notes with my listeners but i'll also you know get a copy for that myself david because I, I think it's a really strong point and almost to what we were talking about before around organizational culture you know that two by two matrix could be applied equally to the difference between england and australia as it could between the difference between i guess lbg and ey and actually understanding all of those cultural traits is critical at a, a cultural, you know, a, a country level, but equally every organization is its own nation state, its own microcosm. And actually understanding some of those differences can be really critical to navigating and you know, sensitively sort of working with people in those places. So I think it's a great recommendation. And yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm definitely going to look it up. And maybe this is a sort of similar theme to the one we talked about, about going out to Australia. And I want to um, a bit, you know, a bit later on talk more about I guess your time at EY and we'll come on to Beringer as well around actually how you build practices, because obviously it was something you, you did successfully at both of those consultancies, albeit they were different types of firms. But I think equally, you know, the point I made around jumping from senior industry to senior consulting is is a big step. Again, the other sort of maybe I call it a cliche is, you know, once you make partner again, similar to making sort of top of a firm, you stay. And I think for yourself, you know, actually, this is now your third senior leadership role in a consulting firm as a partner. And I'd love to just sort of get your take around actually, how do you approach your career in that respect? What is it for you that you look for at each of those stages? And and how do you decide when it's right to be looking to make a move? Is it something that you have, you know, a career plan? Is it something you have sort of a, a personal philosophy about how long you want to be in any role? What is it for you that you, know, you look for to decide if actually it's the right time to be making that next jump? I think what I'd say is po- possibly those transitions you've mentioned have been more circumstantial than by design. 
And what I mean by that was obviously we described earlier some of the, the drivers for the experience in Sydney and, and with EY. And during the three years we were there, you know, I grew the team from one person that was me. So it's pretty lonely at the start, particularly on not work nights out to 35 people. We worked with a whole range of clients in the area. We specialized. We recruited some fantastic people and, and delivered some great client projects. But I think I think in building in a new startup, actually, when you're in a startup situation, you need to think, what are the what are the phases of building a business? And I think that kind of naught to three to four years is a really key phase because actually that's where you go from not perhaps having done as much in that space to actually critical mass and a point where actually at that point you've reached critical mass. You then need to think about, okay, what's that next transition, which is probably to double again in another four or five years. So that was a logical point, a logical stepping off point career wise. But from a family point of view, We'd been in Australia for three or four years. We'd had a fantastic experience, but we actually really wanted our son's education to continue back here in the UK. And we we, we learned that when we went to see some schools actually out in Sydney, where you can imagine the scene. Um, We went to see these fantastic schools, um, these beautiful playing grounds, all these healthy, happy looking kids walking around um, tanned with, you know, great white teeth and these playing fields overlooking the harbour and the facilities were just out of this world. We got home one night and probably cooked a barbecue and my wife and I, um, you know, popped open a bottle of of Aussie Shiraz or something like that. And uh, we're just talking about you know, is this actually what we really want? I think at that moment, we, we realized actually we were just slipping into making a decision, if you like, through the back door. I think though, so that was the circumstance for EY. And I think the Bringer opportunity, once we decided to come back to the UK, Bringer was a company I'd been in contact with since the late Lloyd's days, actually. So, um, and had been considering a, a, a potential move to Bringer, as, as we both said earlier, you know, we've both got a shared history there. Fantastic growth story. But it just so happened that once again, there was one of those serendipitous moments where we suddenly thought, actually, is it the right time to come back? And at the same time, Bringer were looking to build up a life and pensions business. And whilst Bringer had done loads of things really fantastically well and had a quite large and significant insurance business that was largely based on the general insurance and London market side of things and perhaps hadn't done you know as much work in the life and pension space and so they were looking for an experienced leader to come in and build up that part of the business and again because that was a startup albeit under different circumstances which I'm you know which we we can touch on it was growing something without a known brand but that felt like a good serendipitous opportunity where personal desire and business need matched and I think in consulting firms, that's really, really important, particularly when you get more senior in the organization is how does my personal desire plus the needs of the business and the organization, how do they match or not? Because if they do, then there's an opportunity there. If they if they don't, then there's a slight mismatch. So I think that that was the reason for the move to Beringa. And I think, you know, as I say, four years hence, work with many of the most well-known life and pensions businesses, delivered some great client work, worked with some really nice niche and specialist businesses in the life and pensions markets, as well as some of the suppliers to the life and pensions industry. So really great story. But I, one of the lessons I learned at Lloyd's early on was always recruit a, a successor nice and early. And we managed to, to recruit a fabulous leader who will now take that part of the business to the next level and um, will no doubt do fantastic things and, and build on all that kind of early startup success with that next transition to, okay, how do we now scale this and how do we do more client work and add more value to our clients? 
I think some great points, David, and and we'll come on to the brand building because you know, I think there's a really interesting piece in there, and and also on that startup culture piece. I guess just interested, you know, your, that latest move that you've made is obviously more, as you said earlier, you're now COO. You're back on, I guess you call it the operational side of the business. What was it that led you to decide actually that's now the right? You know, you'd just done two of those sort of startup build roles. How did you decide that? this was the time for that change? Was it like you mentioned, you know, with the Beringa opportunity, actually, it was sort of fortuitous and chance and the timing worked? Was it a sort of career planning piece? How did you decide actually, you know, now's the time to go from that practice lead where you built the practice onto more of that sort of senior operations side? It was kind of a bit of both, actually, if if truth be told. I, th- I think the first thing was, as I say, I'd done three, four years at Beringa and we'd been very successful and done lots of things really, really well. We'd built up the team. And so I think the next consideration was, okay, what is that next three to four year stage of the journey? And, and in my heart of hearts, am I, am, I, am I really up for that? So that's quite a personal reflection. I think though, more broadly though, and probably more importantly, it was a f- fortuitous connection of becoming linked with Barnett Waddingham. And I had for some time actually thought about some of the times I had at Lloyd's with some of my fem- fondest memories of being in that much broader, larger leadership role. I had had really started to think about, okay, under what conditions would it be that I'd like to perhaps give another leadership role a go? And and the opportunity came up at Barnett Waddingham, and it really was like the, the, the stars had con- kind of completely aligned because we've got a fabulous culture who put clients and people first, and that very much gels with my own values. The business is very successful, and we've grown successfully for the last 31 years, and we've developed loads of new services. So that that felt like good. It's always good to join a consulting business that's successful. The deep specialisms are in, in the pension space and investments and other areas which I'm really familiar with. And it was back to that leadership role, yet within professional services and, and consultancy. So it was almost like the stars had completely aligned. What really swung it for me, Nick, was the more I just talked to the people at Barnett Waddingham, I just thought, wow, you know, you've been so successful, yet we've got that opportunity to, to help take this to the next level and to, to build on that growth story. And and um, the people, you know, were inspiring, were challenging, were very supportive, very friendly, very open. And I think that's what swung it for me, really, was the culture, the people, and the fact that actually it's a, it's just a, a, a great, fun place. So, um, you know, as I say, we do the right thing by by clients and colleagues we're in it for the long term. We're constantly investing for the future. There's a kind of continuous improvement culture, great teamwork, but individual excellence is expected and it's fun. So you put all of that together and you kind of think, well, it's almost like a bit like the perfect package, but like, wow, someone almost designed this for me, even though they didn't, by the way, I have to say. Sounds like a good mix, David. And and to your point, it gives you that opportunity to do, you know, have that broader role like you, you know, like you enjoyed at LBG. I guess maybe, and this will move us towards that brand building piece, but almost at the the start of that journey is anyone who's listening to this is probably thinking, oh, I like the sound of, you know, you talked about your time in Australia and at Beringo, that sort of passion and the drive and that startup culture. And maybe before we go on to actually how you did that, I'd kind of love to close off this piece by actually just getting your advice for anyone who you know, was where you were either at LBG or you know could have been someone in a you know a bigger consulting firm they might be a, a partner in a large practice at a big four and, and thinking well I kind of fancy trying this almost what would you say are those key skills they need to you know to just look at sort of internally and make sure they have or questions they need to ask themselves what are those questions that will help someone decide actually 
I should go and I am the right person to go and do a startup consulting practice, or actually maybe I'm better off in an established one? How should people think about that to help them make that right choice if that opportunity presents? I think there's a few things that you need to really carefully consider if you want to do a startup. And I remember there was someone, um, one of my mentors I mentioned earlier, actually earlier in my career said, uh, in a consulting business, you should only ever do in your whole career one startup. And I managed to do two in eight years, which <laughs> some might say is foolish. Others might say is is great. I think there's a few different things which are important. I think first, you need to really understand the, the, the company culture you're joining. Is it the right environment that's going to support growth? Are you going to have the right support, the right challenge, and the right things which help fund growth? And that might be client relationships. It might be a brand. It might be networks. It might be just that entrepreneurial spirit. It might be that kind of youth and vitality. It can be a whole host of factors. So what are the the, the contextual things that are going to help you? Secondly, consider the startup in terms of what are, what's it actually really trying to do? And do I have the right skills to be able to do that and add value to that? Thirdly, I think there's a whole piece about business building. And, and what I mean by that is how do you set a plan and a strategy for your area, yet start to create quick wins and some momentum quite quickly? Because you can only rely on a strategy or a plan for so long. You actually need to start getting some runs on the board, to use a consulting phrase. And equally, think about your own personal drive, determination and resilience. You know, how are you going to, because it's not easy starting new bits of businesses within a consulting environment or, or anywhere else. It does require some tenacity, some drive, some determination, some grit, you know, particularly in the early days where perhaps, you know, you don't have the right people with the right skills around you because you haven't had the chance to recruit them yet. You perhaps don't have all of the credentials you might you might ideally want. You may not have all the relationships you want. So how, how do you get through that? How do you, okay, start to, to work with a client, do that first piece of work off the back of that, perhaps do a second piece of work, build those relationships, broaden out, recruit some people back in behind. How do you get that whole juggling act working? So those are some of the things to think about. So some quite personal things, as well as some kind of environmental and contextual things. Yeah, some great advice there, David. And I think tees us up quite nicely, actually, because that obviously is the things you need to be able to do this. And that resilience point, I think, is so important. And you know, I, I've heard it time and time again, and I'm sure you know you you felt this and we'll come on to it, that particularly if you go from a big known brand to a smaller challenger brand, actually, that can become even more acute because you don't have the sort of badge behind you or, you know, on your chest to carry you through. But I you know, from our conversations, I know as you said about building the business in Australia for EY, like the, the same challenges exist. They're just variations on that theme. And maybe to that point, I'd love to, and I, this is a big question I appreciate, so I'll let you sort of chop it as small as you want, is I'd love to almost understand how you approached in each of those cases building that brand. You went off to Australia with your family, your suitcases, and you know started on day one with nothing. And you know, to your point, I think Beringa had that sort of insurance practice that was going, but you went in to sort of build the LMP side. How did you approach in each of those situations building that brand? And almost what was it that in both cases was similar? And particularly for those two examples, what was it that was different when you were doing that first time at EY versus when you were doing that second time at Baringa? Wow, there is a lot in there. So There so, is. So, as I say, it's a biggie. That, I'll now sit back and let you take as much or as little of that as you want to bite off. Yeah, no, no happy to. And, and, and again, I might set some context here. So I think that might be the phrase of the morning, actually. So I'm going to set some context. But... <laughs> I think if you think of EY in Australia, EY is obviously one of the big four. It's a tremendously well-known brand everywhere. EY had a very large 
insurance client base. On the life and pension side in, in Sydney at the time, though, it was more audit based. So channel one, as it's known in, in EY. Whereas on the GI side, there's, you know, really strong consulting business, but also tax and transactions and those types of things. So, so the client base was there. And if you think about the Australian market, and this was another consideration, Nick, I should have mentioned earlier. One of the things we thought about is, OK, how are you going to get started in a new market? And the, the good thing with the insurance market in Australia is even though there are lots and lots of players and lots of people have insurance licenses, actually the markets are semi-oligopolistic. And what I mean by that is there's a handful of very large players and equally then quite a long a long tail. So you need to be You're quite You're taking thoughtful. me back to my economics degree there, David. Yeah, I, t- I, t- <laughs> I think it's one of those, um, you just need to be quite thoughtful about that because if you're going to build a business, it's going to be typically some of those larger players. But but equally, there's a lot of international players who have a presence in the Australian marketplace. So that was one piece to particularly think about. In terms of building the business then, whilst I say EY had a brand, what they weren't known for was business transformation and operational transformation in particular. So the question is, how do you stretch the brand into those different capabilities? And one of the ways we did that quite early doors was we actually did an industry survey so it's completely free to participate, obviously. And the ask of clients was, look, if you if you participate in this survey, um, of course, we'll share a benchmark report back with you and have a tailored conversation with you about what you might want to do with this. And, and we did this survey, I think, across um, 25, 30 large insurance players in Australia with their FDs and in, in some cases their, their CEOs. And we produced, you know, really great glossy report off the back of that. It was really tangible and practical in advice. And the whole context for this was around lots of clients or lots of companies are claiming success with cost efficiency. Yet when you look at their forward projections and their plans, they're looking to double their the amount of cost efficiency they've they've delivered in the next five years, in the previous five years, if that makes sense. And why is that? And what's the driver for that? And how are you going to actually make that next step? Because all the easy stuff's kind of done. And so that was a really thoughtful piece of knowledge leadership, which immediately created our brand with a range of clients. And that included audit clients who we couldn't actually do any consulting work with. But equally, they wanted to learn from the other players in terms of what was working well. We didn't, of course, broach any confidentialities and everyone knew exactly how it was going to work. And it was all very open in terms of the rules of the game, if you like. But that created a huge brand presence. And then off the back of that, we had follow-up meetings with a range of clients. And then we had some proposals which came off that. And then we had some work that came off the back of that. And then that work led to further work. And it's it's just one of those kind of really I guess uh, success builds success or you know success builds momentum doesn't it is uh, and if you get into that kind of successful loop in in growing a startup then that happens at Beringa was a different a different case just to round out your question whereas I say Beringa had fantastic brand at the time in in many parts of particularly the energy sector where it's ranked I believe by the FT as the number one consultancy in that sector and also in many parts of the financial services sector particularly banking and broader insurance. They just hadn't done as much work at that point in time in the life and pension sector. And so that was a slightly different challenge where you couldn't leverage the, the EY brand, if you like, because it, it was unknown. It was more about how do you really start up? So that became more about personal networks, personal connections, and how do you start to have those conversations through your personal network to then introduce the consulting brand? And then from that, 
actually you can take those conversations again to, to that next level. So that was a, it's a different, as you said, in the, in the tee up, it was a different challenge, but both were brand stretches, just brand stretches in different ways with different assets to leverage and different challenges to, to work through. I think, David, you did phenomenally well in answering succinctly what was a very large question. So, so thank you very much for that. And I think some really interesting points within there, you know, particularly around the, the way the approaches differed and, and that point around the sort of the thought leadership, you know, that knowledge leadership piece on the, the EY side and how, how effective that had been. You know, as someone who, who now focuses on consulting marketing, I'd, I'd always recommend anyone does that. Um, but, you know, I'm sort of being slightly biased there given what I do now for a profession. But I, I think, you know, that point around the, the different focuses was really important. And, and I'm interested, again, and this, this may be really practical, but I think another thing that I've heard others say and sort of from my, my network is that point around, like you say, if you go into a brand like EY, it's got such good brand recognition. You know, I'm not saying it's easy because I know it's not, but that can get you through a door at some points. You know, oh, I've, you know, I'm the partner at EY can carry a lot of weight. Whereas when you're going to a more boutique firm, particularly in an industry which doesn't know it as well, that boutique name doesn't always carry as much, I guess, doesn't get you in the door as easily. And to your point around that personal network, you're getting really practical. You know, what were some of those first phone calls? How did you get some of those people to say, actually, yeah, you know, David, I, I've not heard of this Boringa company, you know, but I'll I'll have a chat with you. What for anyone listening who's in that position, what were the steps that you used to get through those early doors? I think some of the things that really worked was was clearly I'd worked, I'd had the benefit of working with Accenture. And lots of my colleagues at Accenture had either gone on to other consultancies and or industry. So there's kind of that network here in the UK. I'd also worked with a host of people at Lloyd's, both in the general insurance side of the business and the life and pension side of the business, who'd gone on to other things. And it, those first interventions were very much reaching out to my extended network just to ask for that coffee for a catch up. Just to say, actually, you know, I've been gone for three years in Australia. I've done some really interesting things. I see you've gone on to do some really fabulous stuff in your career. Love to just connect for a coffee just to catch up and see how you're going. And and it was more of that kind of very personal connection, which then gives, gives the opportunity, of course, in the introductory email, you'd say, I've joined a new exciting firm. I'd love to tell you a little bit more about it. But it gives you that opportunity just to have that client conversation. I think when you're when you're growing a, a business and you're in a startup situation, you just can't have too many client conversations. And it, it really is the hard yards of wearing out shoe leather and, and making sure you, you connect with as many people who are good connections. And don't always think about, oh, I have to jump to this person here because they're in this, this senior level and they're the economic buyer. And don't, don't always think about that sales methodology. Think about actually who are the people I know, I trust, I respect, who are doing some interesting things. And, and it's a two-way thing because some of those people have been my mentees in the past and we've picked up some of those conversations again. Some of those people wanted to learn about consulting and, and wanted to actually find out a bit more. Some people were intrigued in the personal side of the story. So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't fake or false or anything like that. It was just an opportunity to reconnect with a group of people. And from those connections, again, success builds success. If you come back to momentum, good things happen because they start to con connect you with other people. They're like, oh, well, Bringer does some really interesting work in this particular place. So can we introduce you to this person? Because they might be interested in some of the stuff you've done. And, oh, I've heard that energies were a, bit, a little bit more advanced in this particular area. Could we um, perhaps find out a bit more about what you've been doing in that sector? So the, all of these conversations just lead to another conversation. And then and then eventually you you kind of work through the jigsaw and you you connect back to the economic buyer somehow. But, but at least when you do, 
you've actually got the context, you've got the organizational dynamics, you understand more about what the what the priorities are, you understand more about where, where there's investment, you understand some of those very practical considerations that actually are important when it comes to actually um, ultimately perhaps having your first proposal and your first project. I think it's a bit like the point you made around careers, you know, that breadth and almost you know, not trying to hit a home run on the first at bat or whatever the sports metaphor you you know you choose to use is that point around actually broadening your net. And I, I think you know you, you touched on a subtle but again critical point that I I sometimes think we can lose sight of in in consulting or just you know work at large when you're thinking I need to sell work for instance is you, you go straight in with the transactional conversation of David can I sell you something or can you tell me how I can you know work with you and actually that personal angle of just having a conversation. You know, sharing something that's a bit of a break from work, you know, your experience of travel, et cetera, I think it's always a much nicer way to start a conversation. And like you say, actually, a lot of these people, it's just that connection. But if you do that enough, before you know it, you've got 20 conversations and some of those lead to new business. I think some subtle but really powerful advice for anyone listening, David. And like you said on career, it's kind of don't get too blinkered. If you just think I'm only going to talk to the CEO, it's quite a binary way to the top. Whereas I sort of, it's something I find in our business today. I, I speak to a lot of consultants who say, I, we work with CEOs, we work with CFOs. You know, you know as well as I do, particularly in organizations like LBG, you know, where you worked, there's so many buyers below that who may be like two or three or four levels down from the board, but actually having those conversations, those connections can be equally powerful. So yeah, I think some really, really good advice in there. And I think, David, we're, we're sadly coming to the end of our time together. And I know you've teed me up for quite a few of these points in, your, you know, in, in the conversation today. And you, know, you mentioned around books, and I know you've listened to a few of these conversations before. So I suspect you know what's coming here. And these are two questions that I ask every one of my guests, because I really, I really love to get the similarities of these answers, but also the differences and, and you know, unique elements of people's journeys. And the first one is books. And it might be the two you've touched on, but I always like to find out what are the book or books that you find yourself recommending or, or gifting to people most often? And, and why is that? So, so I think possibly the first one, Nick, and I'll, I'll, I think I think there's a couple, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, the more the merrier. What we've talked about today, and we haven't maybe mentioned the T word yet, really, but we've touched a lot on transitions and moving from consulting to industry, moving from industry back to consulting, moving to different geographies, moving between firms. And it's it's managing those transitions is is really quite a key skill. And we perhaps haven't drawn it out. So the first book I'll talk about is one... Um, called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. And what this book does is it gives, again, a very practical, pragmatic way of thinking through the different dimensions of a transition to a new role or indeed a new company or a new geography. And what are some of the watchouts? Because when you're the new shiny, shiny thing, there's obviously that that slight halo effect, but equally you're you're perhaps most vulnerable at that point in your career because you don't have the network yet, you don't have the internal track record, you don't have the relationships, you don't have the friendships, you don't have many of the things which people rely on in their careers. So the book is just a really practical, insightful book that that helps guide you you through that. But I think the other one I'd probably refer back to, which is one that was really useful early in those early Lloyd's days, is a book called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You by Rob Goffey and Gareth Jones. And I think I mentioned that probably one of the biggest learnings is around self-awareness and then using that self-awareness to become a more effective leader. And I think this book is just great in terms of actually, how do you connect with your real authentic self, your real authentic leader? 
And then how do you do that in a way that, that, that starts to create followership in the different facets of your role? So I think that's equally a, a really good book. And then, and then lastly, perhaps the last one I'd, I'd recommend is, is perhaps slightly off-piste, but it's actually um, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama, which is just a fascinating, beautiful read. And I think one of the concepts he talks about in there, although there, there are many, is the difference between absolute happiness and comparative happiness. And unfortunately, in the West in particular, we tend to judge happiness in comparative terms perhaps far too much, whereas actually the, the purpose of life is to find absolute happiness. And what I mean by that is, you know, you might go on a great holiday with your friends, have a fabulous uh, and, and family, have a fabulous time, have a great experience and think, wow, that's a perfect holiday. But then when you flick on Facebook or Instagram, or whatever else, or other social media, you see what everyone else is doing. And suddenly you don't think, oh, well, perhaps I wasn't quite as happy because look, look at what these people are doing. And I think that's a real risk in life is that you spend so long comparing to everyone else and looking for comparative happiness that you don't actually find what makes you happy. You know, some of the things which are most important, like for me, it's, it's my family. It's being a good husband. It's being a good father. It's having a, a great family unit. It's our great friends. And it's, it's, you know, trying my best to, to help and, and add value to the, to the clients and or organizations I work for every single day and trying to just make a difference and a positive impact on the world. So I think it's just great learning in, 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 that, in that sense. I think it's a great recommendation, David. I read too many business books, but I love recommendations like that that are from outside of business, particularly in our industry, because I think it can be very easy to get trapped in the cycle of comparative happiness is you always look at the next pay rise or the next promotion and it can be very easy to get lost in that and not actually sort of take that step back. And I mean, I just, I, I don't always open this question up, but I'd just love to find out anything else on that topic that's really helped you. You know, was it just that book that really sort of opened your mind to it and, you know, your thought process or how did you get yourself on that journey to, you know, towards that absolute happiness as opposed to, you know, always comparing it to like you say, your friend's holiday on Instagram or, you know, your friend's new car on Facebook or wherever, you know, wherever these things are. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not the Dalai Lama and certainly um, <laughs> I, I certainly haven't reached in a fulfillment quite yet. But I think I just refer back to it the whole time, Nick, in terms of I think the question you need to ask yourself is, will it really make me and the people who are closest to me happy? And I think promotions in consulting firms is a great one because, you know, you see people who are almost desperate to make this level. And there might be a whole range of reasons why they're desperate to make that level. Typically, it's actually not money. Typically, it's about status and keeping up with everyone else and wanting to strive to be the best and those types of things. But actually, you need to ask yourself, will it make me happy? And will it Will it take me on the journey to where I want to get to? And will it make the people around me happy? Or will the sacrifices, frankly, just not be worth it? And, you know, that's particularly true at, at the partnership level, actually, when, when you've, you, you're coaching people who are thinking about going for partner. You really do need to think about it. it's a, it's a big undertaking in any firm. Are you prepared for, yes, of course, the brilliant things that come with partnership and all of the, all of the great things that, that, that come from that, but but equally some of the choices and consequences of taking on you know one of those types of roles so i think it's just it's just a, it's a great leveler to ask that simple question in absolute terms will this make you and your people close to you happy as opposed to just comparing to the to the joneses as you say it's i think a critical point david and it was actually one of my previous guests they described that juncture as um, a burger eating contest where the prize is more burgers and I think, you know, so often, and, and I, I say this having never got there, so I, you know, I, 
I may, this may be nonsense, but I think it can be very easy to look at partners and, and hear about partners as if, you know, you it's almost like a plane going through the sky. You know, you go through the, the sort of the rain and the clouds and you get up into this, you know, this lauded space. And and I think to your point, it time and again, I just hear people say, well, it it's the same job. It's different. Obviously, there's more challenges, complexities. But to your point, you've got to make sure you enjoy doing the thing you're doing because that's what will make you happy. Actually, just the title of partner or, you know, like you say, the status will be there for a little while, but just like a new car, it eventually gets old and doesn't keep that happiness. So I think, you know, profound points and, and really powerful and, and yeah, critical. And we, we didn't touch on them, but the first book's equally, I think, really interesting. And that point around transition is not lost on me and that how you navigate that's critical. So those, you know, those two books, I love the, uh, the title of the, why should anyone be led by you? I think that's a great, you know, great title for a book. Did you find an answer by the end of it? Or was it like the Dalai Lama? You're still, still searching for that answer. I, I think in terms of leadership, in terms of leadership, you know, you, you learn more about yourself every day, don't you? And you, you, you know, you get better and better if you work at it, like anything in life. So, um, so yeah, it certainly gave, gave me lots to lots of food for thought, and certainly learned lots from it. But equally, I don't think any of us are perfect, are we? We're always kind of imperfect versions of ourselves, working hopefully to get better. And I think David, that takes us very nicely on to the the last question for today, and. This again, we know we touched on some elements there around your advice. And and this is really a chance to recap that and give advice to people at different stages of their career. So the the question is, you've got three people in front of you. One is at that analyst level, you know, if we use sort of Beringa or Accenture or EY parlance, you know, they're that analyst just coming into the industry. The second is someone who's at that manager grade. So, you know, they're in the middle of that sort of that first part of their career. And and then the final person is, you touched on them actually, someone who's approaching partners. They're a director who, you know, is looking at, do I make partner? Do I do something else? You know, to that point around it being a commitment, what do I do? And and the, the question is quite simply, what one piece of final advice would you give to each of them? Wow. So just 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 the one. Well, I'll try I'll try my best. If there's more, feel free, David. You know, what advice would you give to each of them? Of course. So in terms of the one just just starting up in their career and consulting, I think the piece of advice I'd give is just try and get as much broad experience and variety as you possibly can early in your career. And the reason I say that is is all too often you see people join who have lots of preconceptions about the types of industries they want to work in, the types of roles they want to do, and equally where they don't want to work and what they don't want to do. And I think it doesn't really matter in your career because everything is a learning experience. And yes, of course, you'll get some fantastic experiences and you know, you'll want to do more of those types of things. You may have some experiences which aren't perhaps quite as good and you'll perhaps learn from those, but it's all just rich learning. So just don't be too precious. Don't be too dogmatic in your views. Be open to as many experiences as you can. Because when I coach people at that kind of level, we often do a two by two matrix. And we think about typical ex-consultant where we think about what are the things you've done that you either want to do again or frankly don't want to do? And what are the things you haven't done that you may want to do or you definitely don't want to do? And when you start plotting on there, the richer your experience, the more data points you've got in, a, in, a, in order to inform the future. So that, that, that's the first person. In terms of someone going four or five years in, I think the advice I'd, I'd possibly give is, how do you start to create that, you, I think you said T model earlier. So in other words, how are you going to balance specialism with some of those more general business skills because actually the best partners and we'll come on to partners shortly are the people as we touched on earlier who can probably hold a range of conversations but knows where to to phone a friend and perhaps some of those people who are 
a little bit too specialist or niche don't necessarily take those next steps steps on in the partnership so I'd, I'd i'd encourage people at that level to firstly focus on the t secondly to think about how do i get as much people management and leadership experience as i possibly can and how do i learn to let go of those some of those things that have made me successful and how do i recruit people and grow people to be much better than i could ever be so that would be the, the the second piece of advice. And I think in terms of the person, you know, thinking about partnership, there's probably two questions I'd probably pose to them. And I'd pose it more as questions rather than advice because everyone's different. I think the first is, what do you really want to be famous for? And the reason I pose that question is because actually the most effective partners, they, they may not have written it down or articulated, but the most effective partners at early levels and, and throughout their partnership have a bit of a vision, have a bit of thought about what does that exciting future look like and how I'm going to build a future that's more exciting than the, the, the past. So what do you want to be famous for? And then the second question is about the organisation, just to say, are you sure you're in the right organisation where you want to make that transition? And there's a lot of questions you can explore off the back of that around, you know, the culture, the values, um, the way you work with your colleagues, in terms of do you have the right challenge, the right support, the right inspiration, the right motivation, the right value set. And I think that environment is super duper important as a partner to make sure that there's a, a real match there. So that would be the advice to, to the person thinking about that transition. David, I think that is a fantastic place for us to to close off today. I also I I love the uh, the two by two for the you know for the junior consultants and, and equally you know I, I actually I'm I think it's a great piece of advice for anyone you know I, I know a lot of friends and I'm fr- frankly still similar you know not everyone knows exactly what they were put on the planet to do and having a matrix like that where you're putting all of those different experience points frames it really well. Um, likewise, I think that partner advice and, you know, your point around what do you want to be famous for? You know, we, we didn't have a chance today to touch on, you know, that personal branding and how you do that. But equally, you know, like you say, is is a really key part. So some great advice there. And, you know, I'm sure will be really useful for anyone listening. And the the very last question is is really just, David, a chance for, for anyone who's you know, listened to this, they've really enjoyed it, they want to find out more about yourself, they want to find out more about Barnett Waddingham, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, of course, Nick. And, and and probably the best place is LinkedIn, if that's okay. So um, please do reach out. I do hope um, everyone's uh, have, have have enjoyed today's podcast because, you've, as I said earlier, you've had some fantastic, uh, super interesting and, and super inspirational guests on previously. So I hope I've uh, uh, done you and the podcast justice and given some useful hints and advice. But please do get in contact by LinkedIn. Love to love to connect and explore whatever you'd like to explore. So So please do reach out. Fantastic, David. Well, I'll put those details. So I'll put your LinkedIn profile. I'll also put the Barnett Waddingham website on the show notes so people can go and find it and find you. And to your point, I think, thank you. Thank you for coming on. You know, it's really interesting to find out more about your story. You know, there's a lot in there that I didn't know. And that's always, I like these interviews where I don't know what the outcome is going to be and, you know, where it's going to take us. So thank you very much. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I, I know my listeners will have got a lot out of it as well. So thank you. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Yeah, thank you, Nick. And all the best to you and hope you all stay safe and well. That's the most important thing right now. Uh, stay safe. But also thanks to your listeners for for listening in. And, and thanks to you, Nick, for inviting um, me along today. I do hope it's been useful for people and people have taken some useful advice away from it. Fantastic, David. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. 
If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.